CBS Radio's The New Sky. NewSkyRadio.com. New horizons, no boundaries. CBS Radio's The New Sky. WOMC HD3 Detroit. WKHQ HD3 Seattle. WBMX HD3 Boston. Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal. With Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248 545 Soul. NewSkyRadio.com. Believe. What are Foo Fighters? Were there encounters between military personnel and alleged aliens during World War II? What happened to Leonard Stringfield? Hey, and welcome to the 187th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and all those questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. All right, so this has been billed as an open line show, well, I guess, but in fact, we are we rescheduled it for November 28th. So today, we welcome a fascinating guest to talk about something we've never discussed on the show before, UFOs in World War II. Keith Chester is an author, filmmaker, and mixed-media artist living in Maryland. As a child in the mid-1960s, Keith had a daytime sighting of a UFO. That sparked his interest, but it was not until 1987 that he began dedicating considerable time to research. In 1999, Keith began concentrating specifically on UFOs observed during the Second World War. For the next five years, four of which consisted of weekly visits to the U.S. National Archives in College Park, Maryland... He conducted an in-depth review of World War II documentation, including records generated by the Office of Special Services, OSS, predecessor to the CIA, uh, the War Department, Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force, Office of Scientific Research and Development, United States Army Air Forces. He also interviewed several World War II veterans who had witnessed phenomena. In 2007, his book, Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in World War II, was published by Anomalous Books. Now, the website for that is www.anomalistbooks, A-N-O-M-A-L-I-S-T, books.com, slash chester.html. Uh, he also has a blog at uh, keith-chester.blogspot.com. And I'll remind our listeners, they can call us at 248-545-7685. That's 545-SOUL. Or if listening online at the CBS News Sky Radio website, instant message us with the handy-dandy tool, at the right of your screen. So, Keith Chester, welcome to Beyond the Paranormal. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Ben. Uh, great to be on the show. Okay, it's good to have you. Great. So, uh, before we start talking about World War II, what was your own UFO sighting like? Well, it was in the mid-1960s. I was probably nine years old. It was between 64 and 66. I'm having trouble remembering the exact years. Tell me about it. It, it was a daytime sighting, and I remember running out my house down the front yard to a neighbor's house and out in front of me above a tree line about a thousand yards away was a solid red ball just hanging motionless in the sky. I realized it was something I couldn't identify and at the time I knew what balloons looked like, biplanes, jets, helicopters in the skies and what occurred was I became scared. I I ran inside to get my neighbor, and we came back out probably within 30 seconds, and it was gone. So that in itself was all I can describe, other than it was very unusual. It was solid in color. It was daytime, and it disappeared pretty quickly. So that sparked my interest. Um, 
continue looking into the phenomenon as the years went on. Mm. So how common were UFO sightings during World War II, and what was their nature? They were extensive. Uh, the nature of the sightings go back, well, there was all shapes and sizes and colors. Uh, no different than today. There were disc shaped, there were triangle shaped, there were just circular. Um, and they started really the, in 1933 is when the sightings started to occur. And by the time World War II kicked in in 1939 and the RAF were flying bomb missions, uh, it really started to escalate. Uh, all the way into the end of the war. And interestingly enough, uh, when people talk about the wartime sightings, they hear the term Foo Fighter. Now, the term Foo Fighter was used to describe the objects only for about three months of the war, from about December 1944 through about March or April of 45. Before that, they were called the Thing, the Light, Balls of Fire, Whatever term was applicable for the observer to use when he was informing his intelligence officer what he encountered. Now, my book is basically and primarily all RAF, Royal Air Force, and Allied Air Force sightings and the commands and the reports. I stayed away from the civilian sightings, which were very extensive, too, around the world. Uh, so that I wanted to clear... I always want to make sure people understand that Foo Fighter was only one term applied to the phenomenon of which was in large numbers throughout the war. And uh, some of the sightings were almost as if they came out of pulp science fiction to just a regular light in the sky like today. So the variety was much in terms of how it was described, uh, how large it was, how far away, its, its maneuvers, and generally the pilots who were seeing them were being unnerved by them, and these were wartime veterans. They, it was not war nerves. These guys were observing things in the sky that they could not identify, and that's during a time when they knew what the ME-262, the jet fighter the Germans were using. They knew about rockets. They knew about flares. They've seen all this, and by the time they encountered something, they pretty much had an idea that it was something that was beyond the technology that they were utilizing. You know, what's very interesting about this from what I, I, my little knowledge in this is it, like UFO sightings during this period were very common over Germany and they weren't just seen by RAF and U.S. Air Force and people like that, right? They were seen by the normal German citizens and stuff like that. But um, That's correct. That's correct. Then after that, after, shortly after Project Paperclip and all that stuff, UFO sightings became more prevalent in the United States, with Roswell kicking that whole thing off right after they brought the Nazi scientists over to America. So I just find that interesting correlation between the two. Hmm. That's a very good point, and there's a, a camp of researchers who feel that the UFO phenomenon was generated by the Germans, who had the technology during the war and after the war, and once the war was over and we started the exploitation program of bringing the German scientists into the country, that's when everything escalated. Now, you can't put blinders on and not look at these this situation, but when you look at the UFO phenomenon as a whole, around the world, over 60 years from the wartime and then before, you realize the phenomenon was so incredible 
so large and had so many factors involved, it doesn't seem to fit a terrestrial explanation when you look at it at the grant. But if you look at it during the war or right after in very specific cases, you can see, well, could it be our technology? But once you look into the signs and see how they're described, the size of the ships, how fast they were traveling, what they were able to do, you quickly realize that technology did not exist then, and yeah. I doubt today. Exactly. But uh, anyway, back on topic. Um, what happened to Leonard String, uh, Stringfield? Uh, Leonard Stringfield was a sergeant in the U.S. Fifth Air Force, and it was August 28, 1945. He was flying from, he was part of an intelligence group, the first intelligence group to fly into the Asugi Airdrome in Japan. Yeah, so the war they, was over. The war was over. Yeah. So they were going in to prep for the major influx of the American troops coming in for getting the country back on its feet. So what happened was he was flying in the C-46 transport aircraft. They were between the islands of Iajima and Iashima. He looked out, they were over open water, and coming out of a cloud bank were three disc-shaped, circular-shaped, burning magnesium in color, objects flying in formation. He said at an arm's reach, they were probably the size of a dime. Now, what took place next was there was commotion in the cockpit of his aircraft, and the co-pilot came back and said, we're going down. Something was wrong with the aircraft. They were dropping, and he happened to look out and saw those three objects go back into the air, into the cloud bank. This was probably over a period of 30 seconds. About that same time, his aircraft regained altitude, and they made an emergency landing in Iijima. When he got out of the aircraft, he tried to contact the pilots, but they were a whisked away for briefing, debriefing, and he said that the whole left side of the aircraft that he was sitting on had oil leaked all the way down from the engine. He also found out later that there was problems with the controls. Uh, the dials were spinning, the classic case of, a, of everything going haywire. Mm. So there could have been some type, he felt there was some type of correlation there between the objects he'd seen and, of course, his aircraft malfunctioning. Now, they were at a distance, and... The thing is that he was aware of the Foo Fighter sightings and intelligence memoranda that was being generated. So he knew that strange things were being observed, and he realized at that point, since they had air superiority, he was seeing something that was not conventional, especially since he could not identify any kind of physical, any wings, anything. They were just strictly like a burning magnesium is how he described it. Uh, he got out of the service in November of 1945, and I like, to, I like to tell a story that Richard Hall, another famous uh, UFO researcher that goes back to the 1940s, 50s, he knew Len personally, and Len was so unnerved by that particular sighting, he never flew again. Wow. He always took mass transit or drove. Hmm. And he, can, he dedicated the rest of his life to UFO research. Okay. Is he, uh, is he still alive? No, he died of... Uh, in 1993 94 is when he died. Okay. okay, so we already covered that the Germans have seen, all the Germans have seen UFOs. What about the Japanese and Italians? Did they report UFOs at the same time? Regarding the military, is that what we're talking about? Well, military, civilians, 
Whatever. Okay. I came across no reports other than you, we, what you read in some of the literature and some of the books. There was not a lot of, of information being generated in the magazines and literature through the last several decades. However, you would hear stories and uh, that the Germans were reporting them. The only thing that I came across I can personally tell you is that one of the witnesses during 1945 of a Foo Fighter told me that after the war, not long after the war, he was working with an uh, aircraft industry, and they were meeting at Niagara Falls for a get-together. At that time, uh, they had a speaker who was an intelligence officer who was just going to talk about the war. And after that gentleman gave his lecture, the witness I interviewed approached him and said, hey, I loved your talk, but you spoke about everything but the Foo Fighters. <laughs> he says, the intelligence officer looked at him and said, oh, you saw one of those. He says, coincidentally, that the intelligence officer started talking about a time which happened to be January 1st, 1945. It was exactly the same time that this gentleman had seen his... Uh, okay, we're, we're going to have to wrap for a break here. We'll come right back to that subject on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS New Sky Radio, NewSkyRadio.com. Stay with us. Join Kimmy Rose on Interviews, Thursday nights from 9 to 11 p.m. Together as a community, we will embrace the challenges in life and find a way to experience heaven on earth. Spiritual teachers and Kimmy will bring you insight on how to change your life and embrace purpose. Interviews, this Thursday night starting at 9. It's all about what's within you. Get you. 
Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOUL. New SkyRadio.com. And welcome back to a fascinating conversation with our guest, Keith Chester, who is an expert on UFO sightings during World War II, Foo Fighters and things of that kind. Now, uh, Ben had asked a question about whether uh, the Germans, Japanese, and Italians, along, you know, along with the Allies, had reported uh, sightings of these things. And, um, yeah, and I was going to comment, certainly the, you said there were some German reports, but I can't imagine governments like that sort of freely disseminating information about UFO sightings, especially at the time. Uh, the Soviets only just, uh, you know, or the Russians, I should say, only just sort of came clean on some of that stuff, it seems to me. That's absolutely right. And during the war, of course, when the objects were being observed by the Allies, the first thing that entered their mind were they were absolute, uh, actually secret weapons, either by the Germans or the Japanese. A natural conclusion. Sure. And, but what took place was as the sightings progressed or into the sighting itself, they were unnerved by what they were seeing. They were seeing objects turn at 90-degree angles. So their first thought was, we've just encountered a German rocket that we've never seen before. However, it seems to glow, and the thruster never turns off. How can that be for, for you know, 15 minutes? And then they see it stop, and then they see it take off straight into the air, and these men claimed at thousands of miles per hour. That's how quick they were leaving. Yeah. Now, what's... The Foo Fighter term was actually brought about by one night fighter unit, an American night fighter unit that was stationed in France. They were the 415th Night Fighter Squadron. And they called them the Foo Fighters based on a Smokey Stover cartoon that was very popular in the 1940s. I never knew that. And so that's how that came about. It was just something funny. But all these guys were following science fiction. They were, you know, they were they grew up on all this, and they soon realized that, you know, there's it may not be German, even though most thought it was. And the Germans were seeing them too, and so were the Japanese. The reports have been generated, but like I think you were mentioning, a lot of the, the material is still not out in the public domain or it was destroyed. If you listen to what the British say, they destroyed all their World War II records, which I find incredulous. I, 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 I would think that that's mistake. astounding, yeah. yeah. Yes. Wow. Were any reports, uh, were there reports of any encounters on the ground, say by ground troops or, or landings or anything of this kind? Did you run into anything like that in your research? I came across one that was on the ground, and that was during uh, March 25th, 45. And it was in Germany. It was... Uh, with the 44th Armored Infantry Battalion, uh, a bunch of men were camped along the highway, I think the Audubon, and uh, it was a f- the night was had just turned dark, and they saw six or seven yellowish-orange circular objects come out of a field along the highway. It, they looked to be about three to four feet in diameter. There was no sound. They followed the highway, parallel to the highway, at about 150 feet, and traveled, he thought, at about 10 miles per hour. And they just went down the road, and that completely stunned them because they realized, well, it can't be a flare, and it can't be a vehicle, 
and it couldn't be an airplane because they were bivouacked right there in open fields, and they were looking right at them. So that report was generated, I believe, in the probably in the 70s. It uh, was put in a MUFON journal by one of the witnesses. I think his name was John Morris. Okay. That's um, really amazing. But there may be many more we don't know about that weren't reported. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I remember the Soviets, because this is after the war. It's funny, a lot of the... Uh, the, the sightings that, you, that that you're mentioning were very close to the end of the war. The one you just mentioned was like two months before the end of the war. The war in Germany at least ended in May, if I recall. And um, I don't know, is there any significance to that, do you think, or, or what? No, because the sightings <laughs> went all the way back to 1933. Right, okay. So, all right. I'm sorry, go ahead. So that would, would have been uh, what they call the Scandinavian sightings. Sweden, Norway... Finland. They were reporting objects that defied the known ability of the flyers in Europe at the time. In the early uh, 30s? This, in uh, this 1933, they wow. actually conducted investigations. I started my book with 1933 because it was military investigations involved with the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And okay. it uh, actually took place in areas during blizzards, during areas that were totally remote, that aircraft at the time could not reach. Some of the sightings included lights in the sky and a beam coming down to the ground. Some of them included sound, which weirdly enough sounded like prop aircraft, which completely confused them. They were never able to determine what was taking place. Uh, the, the major papers, the New York Times, wrote about this. At one point, they contacted Howard Hughes to determine if he had hired somebody or he himself had been performing stunts off the east coast of the United States, way out over open sea, which was a big deal at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was, just like today, uh, they felt they were probably balloons, or they were just the moon, or whatever explanation they could come up with. But it was a mystery at that point. And by the time World War II started, uh, then the military of course, were very active in the skies, and that's when we started to see the gen, you know, a large generation of sightings coming in. And the most important thing to understand there is that the term flying saucer and UFO did not exist. Right. So when I started to investigate, I had to understand that terminology was a key point when I tackled all those records. I was looking at the National Archives because it wasn't going to read like a normal report. So I would come across things in a, a major intelligence report of a bombing mission. And there were things in there that would say, like an airship, shaped like a cigar. It appeared to be like a Zeppelin. So that, to me, was very important because these reports were sanitized. They were not in raw form. So for the intelligence officer to put that kind of terminology in there and not state it was a Zeppelin, there was no time for inaccuracies, showed there was confusion. And that confusion was being generated in all the reports because on the mission reports, I started to discover there was an actual section called phenomenon or phenomena, depending on the report itself. And in there, you would see the latest advances in technology of what they did identify and think, oh, this was likely a flare um, or two balls that had chains to get wrapped around the propellers. But you would also see these strange sightings that they couldn't identify. Okay. 
It's funny that you mentioned Scandinavia. <clears throat> Not to digress from our questions here, but just just for a moment. Uh, Shane Eno, who's not a relation to us, but he's the head of the Paranormal Institute of Denmark, a very nice chap, and he's on our show now and then. He mentioned that in Denmark, now whether they were doing this in the 30s, I don't know, the power plants would, would, would clean their turbines, I think it's what, like once, once, a, was it, what did he say, once every six months, once a year? I think so. Yeah, and whenever they do that, the turbines are slowed to a certain point in which they apparently create uh, a, a, an infrasonic sound wave, which cannot be heard by the human ear. But we found that infrasonics or, or, or standing waves can produce, either produce the illusion of basic paranormal phenomena, including lights, uh, or it can, in, in, according to our theories, perhaps open doors to paranormal phenomena that are real by means of you know, playing funny tricks with space-time. So, I mean, who knows? But... Uh, did you? Did your research, I suppose, didn't include power plants in Scandinavia at the time? No, but that's a good point, and that's an element of a of the sightings that we have to you can't ignore. You know, a percentage of that could have very well been what was being reported. Yeah, because he says also, you know, the the reports of paranormal phenomena, you know, hit the roof when when they do that today, according to Shane. So well, that's very interesting. Some, I, I that's extremely, that. yeah, something to something to look into. You know, for at least uh, maybe some explanation. I, I don't know who knows. Um, I'm struck, uh, Keith, by by the differences, or the, or in some cases, the the lack of difference between the reports of UFOs today and the ones made during World War II. What say you? Well, they were pretty. Uh, are you seeing why the reports of the objects themselves in World War II are different than today? Oh no! So, so, so the nature uh, of the objects reported seems to be similar to the to at, le- at least until recently. Let me qualify that by saying that we've had several guests recently, <coughs> excuse me, who keep UFO databases. <coughs> excuse me again. And what they're saying is that just within the past few years, within the past ten years at most, the nature of phenomena seems to uh, have changed to some degree. For example, you'd always see uh, like well the, the Foo Fighter type thing, you know, the craft. You know, hovering above the ground, maybe on the ground, and this sort of thing. Now, he said, a lot of the reports have to do with smaller balls of light, according to them. But but up until recently, they do seem to match what you have been describing that people saw during World War II. I see. Well, what I find is that during World War II, the variety of size and the type of design being reported very dramatically. Uh, the Foo Fighters themselves, uh, the re- pilots reported being the size of a baseball to the size of a full moon. Uh-huh. And so, it's, of course, that was at night, and they weren't sure the distance, but... It's very difficult. But, yeah. but the majority of the pilots were sure they were very close, and in most cases, just off their wingtip. That's what scared them. Hmm. Uh, they actually were trying to combat them. They ch- tried to shoot at them. They uh, were astounded in some ways because they actually felt what they thought was prop wash go across the aircraft in some instances. They, in one case, they actually felt heat. Really? Yes, and when these things approached. But these are the ones that were reported. I don't know how many were like this, but not the, not the majority. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that some of the some of the objects. Let me uh, uh, pick out one here. It's August of 1944. Uh, you know, there's an RAF crew 
uh, flying over France or coming back from a bombing mission. This report comes from uh, Andy Roberts and Dr. David Clark out of England, London. They found this report, and they were able to interview the pilots, and what the pilots saw is as their Lancaster approached what they thought were four lights, five lights separated in the sky, hovering. They at first thought they were flares, but they maintained a perfect, perfect uh, line. They got close and realized that these were portholes with light shining from the inside. The object was disc-shaped, five times larger than their bomber. Now, they it was hanging motionless in a moonlight sky. They were able to determine it, it definitely had a physical shape. And at that point, when they got to a certain distance, the object shot straight into the air, which was reported many times, and it astounded them at the speed. Wow. Uh, we're coming up. I'm up to, We're coming up on a break here. Uh, but when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, continue our conversation with uh, Keith uh, with uh, Keith Chester on UFOs during World War II, and um, I wanted to just so you can think about it during the break. Um, some of the eyewitnesses you you have uh, you have interviewed, and also some of the the documents you have uh, have looked at from intelligence agencies, and I'm very curious to know also uh, how long uh, some of these things will be classified. I have some familiarity with that. Okay. So um, anyway, yeah, stay with us. Uh, it's, we're behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS New Sky Radio, NewSkyRadio.com. And uh, if you are listening uh, on the computer, um, then please uh, use the instant message feature. Uh, otherwise, uh, if you're listening on your radio, give us a call. Uh, the little fellow who sounds just like Nick Pope, I think, will, when he, when he uh, reintroduces the show, will tell you the number. And uh, we'll, be, um, we'll be right back, so, uh, so stay with us. Enlighten. Empower. Enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New Horizons. No boundaries. It's not time to make a change. Just relax, take it easy. You're still young, that's your fault. There's so much you have to know. Find a girl, settle down If you want, you can marry Look at me, I am old but unhappy I was once like you are now And I know that it's not easy To be calm when you found something going on Take your time, think a lot Why think of everything you've got For you will still be here tomorrow But your dreams may not How can I try to explain When I do, he turns away again It's always been the same same old story From the moment I could talk I was ordered to listen Now there's a way And I know That I have to go away I know 
I have to go It's not time to make a change Just sit down, take it slowly You're still young, that's your fault There's so much you have to go through Find a girl, settle down If you want, you can marry Look at me, I am old, but I'm happy That I've cried Keeping all the things I knew inside It's hard But it's harder to ignore it If they were right I'd agree But it's them they know Not me Now there's a way And I know That I have to go away I know I have to go Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOUL. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. And we're back with our guest, author, and UFO expert, Keith Chester. And Ben is going to start off our next section with another question. No, I'm not. All right, <laughs> so how many eyewitnesses have you interviewed? I interviewed about 15 i believe 12 actually made it to the book uh and unfortunately all these witnesses have passed on oh okay yeah well that's trouble with world war ii vets at this point yeah we always make it a point to thank them for what they did we do meet them you know uh well uh, of of these eyewitnesses how many were army air force um how many were navy or were they all flyers or what one was navy uh stationed to a ship and, of course, the rest were Army Air Force pilots and navigators. Okay. All and, Americans? Yeah, all Americans. And then, of okay. course, there was Mr. Stringfield, who was uh, air intelligence. Right. He wasn't, he wasn't a pilot. We, we, were, we were talking one day uh, when, uh, with, with a guest, and it was on our New England okay. show, and a, a fellow called in right out of the blue, said that he had been a, a radar operator. Oh, I guess uh, it wasn't World War II, it was, it was Korea. But he'd been a radar operating operator in Korea, and um, they picked up on their radar a, a UFO, and he called his uh, supervisor over, and, and uh, the guy said, um, "You know, you, you don't you don't talk about this. Uh, you know, you know this this sort of thing. Everything was clamped right down on the on the uh, on the uh, incident." And um, he said um, he hadn't talked about it since, and he heard our show, and then he called and said, "This is what." So. There are a lot of people maybe who uh, did not come forward or, or did, did, did not report what they saw. But anyway, Absolutely. yeah, anyway, uh, Keith, uh, some of your uh, sources were documents from early intelligence agencies. Uh, did they come to any conclusion about what these sightings were? Was there speculation? Uh, what, what, did, what did they actually uh, say about what, what this meant? Well, that's the problem. The documentation that really goes into what they what was being reported or observed or their opinions is still either classified or just has not been found yet. Really? Okay. But what, and before I could commit myself to four years at the archives to dive through this record, I wanted to have at least one document that was generated by the government that indicated there was a real phenomenon. And that document came in the form of the Robertson Panel Report, which was a 1953, January 53, 
panel of scientists who hosted by the CIA to determine if UFOs was a national security threat. Because in 1952, with the flyover of UFOs over Washington, over the Capitol in Washington, D.C., thousands upon thousands of scientists around the world, a, a huge amount of attention was generated on this subject. The, it was the first press conference held since World War II to, by the military to try to curtail the public concern. So this panel was met and had met, and Dr. H.P. Robertson, a physicist who was a, a prominent scientist during the war, chaired it. And in that report, which I don't feel has been released in full, they talk about the Foo Fighters. They talk about that the, the scientists believe that it might be St. Elmo's fire. It might be some type of electromagnetic or effect or some type of celestial or meteorological phenomena. But yet, in that report, there was a section called On Lack of Danger, and I'll, I'll quote here. If the term flying saucers had been popular in 1943 through 1945, these objects would have been so labeled. End of quote. Now, that was in the CIA document, yeah. and that was it. So that told me there was a lot more to the phenomenon. But by 1953... They, the United States government, I feel, made it an art form to completely bury this subject, to completely take the edge off, to make sure that the public was not overzealous with it. And their attitude was that if a UFO encounter occurred because of our national defense, they were scared that the Russians were going to launch an attack and use a fake UFO event to generate a lot of calls and clog the telephone lines in Washington. Thus, the response to the, to the attack will be lessened, and that was a real fear. That's sensible, yeah. So uh, that's what took place there. So that document was what led me into the research okay. wholeheartedly. Now, did any of the eyewitnesses you interviewed or any of the documents you consulted in any way indicate any kind of contact during World War II, or did any of these fellows... Here's, we, we tend to go deeper here in this show, and here's one of the questions that's going to lead us deeper, I hope. Did that occur during the war, or did any of the fellows you spoke with indicate any kind of contact or paranormal experiences or anything of that kind later in life, or did that come up? With most the veterans that I spoke with, they most of them felt, all but two, that they were dealing with German high technology that has not been revealed. Okay. But to this day, they felt that they are very puzzled why they haven't seen that technology used. Mm -hmm. That's kept them guessing. Now, Mr. Stringfield and Harold Augsburger, who was the commanding officer of the 415th Night Fighter Squadron, both felt that they were dealing with something extraterrestrial in nature. Okay. And they realized, it, Mr. Stringfield, and they both came to conclusion after the war. And by the time I, you know, I was speaking with them, they, they were pretty uh, convinced that that's what it was. Now, what the nature of being extraterrestrial is, they they weren't sure, but they did believe that. Okay. All right. So you mentioned that you had a a navy 
a person who was in the Navy speak to you about Foo Fighters. Like, what was their story? He was on a ship. It was also near the time the war had just ended. And I forget where in the Pacific he was located. And he was on top just resting. He was looking up at the night sky. And he noticed that what he thought was a star began to move. And then he thought, how could that be? That means it was hovering. And it was pretty high up. And it actually did a box kind of uh, formation through the sky. It traveled in the shape of a box. And it returned to that original position. And that was his sighting, but that pretty much uh, caused him to think that either the enemy had something we didn't know about or we had something we weren't talking about that uh, we had in our our store of, of type of weaponry that had not been disclosed yet. Okay. What about uh, German or Japanese intelligence documents uh have you had a chance to look at any of those for any of their conclusions about what these things might have been strangely enough i have found none no documentation out of germany or japan of course i can't speak german i can't speak japanese and i haven't had the chance to visit the country in their archives okay. but it seems to me the german researchers most of their consensus is that it was a german technology that's what you hear most of. However, um, there's just as many in Germany and Japan who feel that we were dealing with something beyond our capabilities. Yeah. Well, of course, you have to realize that people, uh, you know, st- still think very narrowly today, and we're, you know, it's only because of science fiction movies and books that we are becoming used to the idea of extraterrestrials at all. So anyway, that's that's just an observation. But we're going to take another break here. We'll be right back again. I'm Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS New Sky Radio, NewSkyRadio.com, with our guest, Keith Chester. Stay with us. Spiritually Raw, the ass-whipping truth, where skeptics meet spirits and consciousness connect. Meet the four distinctly different individuals, building a multimedia enterprise revolving around the spirit world. No topic is taboo. Tune in as they expose and explore controversial beliefs behind the truths, myths, theories, and religious dogmas surrounding the metaphysical world. They're smart, witty, intuitive, with a raw sense of humor that won't allow listeners to feel sorry for themselves. Special guests, range from psychic mediums to Catholic priests and everyone in between. Be prepared for a cataclysmic collision of energies. Callers and opinions are welcome if you dare. SpirituallyRaw.com Move like 
Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOUL. New SkyRadio.com. And here we are again with author and UFO investigator Keith Chester. And we are talking about UFOs during World War II. Uh, Keith, we need to, you know, we're coming out of the end of the show here. And what is your conclusion about what these people were seeing was it different things or what you must have uh, thought about this a lot i'm sure yes uh, as far as i i can understand i believe these men were seeing something very real some a phenomenon in itself in some cases they were seeing physical craft and this has to do with the radar situation on the ground and in their aircraft and it was enough to generate high-level investigations during the war, which most do not believe occurred, but it did occur. And my opinion is that the phenomenon itself is, of course, multifaceted. So to pigeonhole it into is just a nuts-and-bolts category, which appeared to be just what these men were encountering at the time, would be unfair. But I... I personally think that the UFO phenomenon has been evolving for whatever reason. I, I don't know. And actually, I have more questions now than I did in 1987 when I first jumped into this full time. A lot of people say that in this field. Yeah. All right. I, <laughs> so it's, I, you know, to be very focused just on the war, I feel that they were dealing with something that defied the conventional technology of the time. And it was not meteorological celestial phenomenon. It was not war nerves. And uh, it really shows that modern-day ufology didn't start with Kenneth Arnold in 1947. It right. actually started 
a decade before. Of course, uh, for every investigator, there's a different opinion about the, what the UFO thing is all about. You know, and, and as we were saying during the break, you can go all the way back to uh, Pharaoh Amenhotep the Fourth and his disc experience in the sky. You know, and, and say you know you stuff or cave paintings or whatever, all the way up to today. Do you have an opinion about what the whole UFO thing is all about, or, or, or is there a purpose? Is there a pattern? What do you think? I, I've just I followed the literature through the years, and I've come across so many great theories, and that's all we have. That's all we have to really work with are the, theories. Exactly right. Yeah. And what, what these theories mean to each of us, I feel the UFO phenomenon is, like I said, very multifaceted, and I hate to pigeonhole it. It's like to call it just, you know, a physical or a nuts and bolts, that's what I'm dealing with here. Sure. Or, or dimensional or things like that. I think that it incorporates all of this, and it may be one in the same or the ability. So why can't a physical craft from another world be able to do things that we would label as paranormal? And so I'm just open to all of this, and I think that we're dealing with something that has intelligence. I think we're dealing with something that is not in our, our world, in our dimension, and, mm-hmm. but I have no way of proving that, so it's just another theory. I see. Okay, but well, it's tell us. It certainly is. Uh, tell us about your book, Strange Company. Well, I, you can get that at anomalousbooks.com. And uh, it was something I put, you know, four years, five, six years into researching and probably ten years thinking about after meeting Mr. Stringfield. So I hope people enjoy it. It's very heavily referenced. There must be 500 references to documentation. Uh, There's not a lot of me trying to speculate. It's strictly how it was reported. I think that's what your readers, your listeners will find interesting in the book itself is that it tells the story as it unfolded chronologically through the war. And you'll walk away thinking that there was quite a phenomenon in place and the highest levels of the government were very concerned by it. Mm-hmm. Sounds and really you, fascinating. Yep. I'm sorry, go ahead. And you can check, uh, I have a blog called Stalking the Elusive Truth and I just started not long ago. So uh, that's how you can find me in the book. Uh, Barnes Nobles, uh, Borders, anywhere but if if you like world war ii if you like technology if you like learning about that element of it uh, i think you'll find the book fascinating excellent yeah strange company military encounters with ufos in world war ii on the blog site uh, keith-chester.blogspot.com okay well keith it's it's been absolutely fascinating we're really grateful to have you on today and i'm glad we uh, we saved the show we had a little bit of confusion but we're going to have you back again. And uh, just quickly, what, what are you working on, uh, on now? Are you planning another book? Are you doing more research? What? I'm still following up with all the loose ends from the first book. There's quite a bit. And so I go down to the archive still and whenever I can, and I'm still beating down that path. I just found a little niche that for me, and I'm, that's what I'm following. I'm really Excellent. Okay, well, Paul, terrific. Ben, thank you so much for inviting me on the show. Thank you. You're welcome. And let's stay in touch, okay. and we'll have you back again. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Keith. Take care. Okay. Okay, I want to remind our listeners, too, they can call us uh, again, um, uh, 
uh, during these shows or write to us uh, during the week at paul at be- or ben at behindtheparanormal.com. And we do try to get to uh, our emails toward the end of each show if we have a chance. I don't think we're going to have a chance tonight. Uh, but we will, be doing an, uh, we will be doing our open line show, I believe, in two weeks. Uh, again, behind the paranormal website, we'll tell you our schedule. I don't have it in front of me. But we will be answering as many as we can of the emails at that time. Okay, so let's, uh, too much time left. Wanted to uh, let you know again, BehindTheParanormal.com is our site. Check out our guests, our uh, upcoming shows, past shows, and over 200 podcasts are available uh, on that site of our shows from all our different stations. And, uh, yep, and and we're going to be adding to that, uh, this one. They're on about, oh, within 24 hours, if not sooner, of when the shows, uh, shows take place. All right, so all our podcasts are not uh, not only at the newskyradio.com, they are at our show website behindtheparanormal.com. And we want to thank our producer Will Kosnick, and we'll see you right here next Sunday, November 14th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific on CBS New Sky Radio, newskyradio.com, when we'll welcome Dave Kane, author of 41 Signs of Hope for the amazing and moving story of ongoing contact with his son Nikki youngest victim of the Rhode Island uh, Station nightclub fire of 03. Perhaps you remember that in the news. Uh, You're not going to believe some of this stuff that's going on. He communicates with his family by means of the number 41. It's really amazing. So uh, check that out. And again, uh, the book, 41 Signs of Hope, and the author, uh, Dave Kane, who was a well-known broadcaster here in New England, and uh, he's going to be with us next week. All right, so in the meantime, check out our Monday night drive time show at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 Pacific on WOON, 1240 a.m. in the southeastern New England on nonworldwide.com. Also, you can hear our rebroadcasts of Behind the Paranormal on Saturdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific, right here on CBS New Sky Radio. Okay, and uh, we're going to... Uh all right, well, we've got a little bit of time here. Oh, they'll, they'll tell us when we... Oh, no, yeah. no, we don't. <laughs> anyway, in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with an intriguing thought attributed to Gautama the Buddha. Uh, just as a candle cannot burn without fire, men cannot live without a spiritual life. And uh, let's not end just yet. What did, you, what did you think of that approach? I know you're really interested in the German technology aspect. Of it. Uh, well, I don't know, from the stuff that I've seen, which History Channel surprisingly isn't always wicked credible, but um, like there were like there were schematics that one German scientist wrote, or he he drew them up and said something to the effect of, "Oh well, I came up with the anti gravity thing and blah blah, yeah. blah 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 blah." Anyway, well, I'm gonna have to build Bill Burns on that one. Yeah. So anyway, th- thanks for joining us on our cosmic journey today. See you next time.